Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where we jump off the stage to crowd surf and immediately eat shit. So grab your Nirvana tea and some ice for your face and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about feeling stuck. Feeling stuck can happen all over our lives. I mean, really anywhere in relationships, in jobs, where we live, within ourselves. I think it's something everyone experiences at some point, but I also think that for people who have survived trauma, especially childhood trauma, there's a way that our brains are sort of wired to feel stuck because we literally were stuck as children. We'll get into all that. But first, I'm so excited to welcome my guest this week. She's going to help us get some clarity around feeling stuck. Registered clinical counselor and psychotherapist, Zara Newcomb. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Hey, Remy. It's so awesome to be here. I've been, yeah, I'm so excited and such a fan. So yeah, this is one of my favorite topics to riff on and I can't wait to get going with you. Yay. Well, I am thrilled to have you. To get us started, let's chat for a minute about your astrology. You are a Libra sun, Leo rising, Aries moon. So fire and air, which is such a fun combo. I also have fire and air in my top three. So I love this. Libra is a very um, balance seeking sign. It wants to see situations from every angle Uh, In the tarot, Libra is represented by the justice card. So there's this sense of like wanting justice, wanting balance. They're gifted with diplomacy. So that's all really lovely in the work that you do. Leo rising is so cool. Leo leads from the heart and your rising sign oversees how you interact with the outside world. So Leo rising brings a lot of passion and heart and generosity into their connections with the public and with the circles that they run in. And the Aries moon is just big. Like this is just such a big placement. There there can be a lot of urgency with Aries, right? Like it's a fire sign, the most ambitious fire sign. So it wants to lead and be in control. And these are areas where Aries energy, you know, kind of really excels being a leader and taking the reins. But it's so interesting to me when Aries is in the moon placement because the moon oversees emotions. So you can have both the urgency of fiery Aries in the sense that emotions can come in hot or with this sense of urgency. And you also have the desire to lead and control the Aries like. So then that urgency can be met with this kind of like boss energy that can temper the intensity of the emotional reaction. I don't know if any of that resonates for you, but I feel like that dichotomy would make for a great therapist, someone who knows what those big emotions feel like, but also who can tap into a leadership role with those emotions. Is any of that relatable for you? Hmm. Yeah, I I love that introduction and I love that you bring astrology into this space. And it's interesting as you were speaking about this and kind of holding all of my signs, I, I was thinking about like, yeah, like Libra to me often shows up in the therapeutic space as um, the capacity to see many perspectives and to hold multiple truths and to be that diplomatic role. But then on the inside, like I always notice that I have like this, like kind of like deep passion or like this desire to go to the depths and this emotional, um, 
yeah, I think when I was younger and as a child, definitely like these really intense emotions. And so part of my own healing path has been about really connecting to that aspect of myself and having and not like demonizing it or demoralizing it, having it be part of like my power and my passion. And, and so the marriage of that, of that like intensity, and then also the kind of space holder that I think Libra provides is, yeah, it's an interesting combination as a therapist, but I, I love how you bring that into this, this space. And I think, yeah, Leo, yeah, the Leo energies is, is interesting too. I think I, I surround myself with a lot of Leos. So there's, there's like that, that draw to kind of be out in the world and to, to be adventurous and to, to like try new things and do new things and hold those experiences. Um, which also I think as a therapist is good too, because you're not afraid to go to the spaces that maybe some people might be afraid to go to. Like there's, I think maybe that you could bring in some Scorpio energy there too, which I also have in other aspects of my chart. Where do you have Scorpio? I'm so curious. Mars. Yeah. And and I think Mercury too, but I could be, I could be wrong. I might have to fact check that. Oh my God. Well, it makes so much sense that you have Mars and Scorpio with when you were talking earlier and you were saying, um, I want to go to the depths and I have this like deep emotional experience. I was like, I wonder if she has Scorpio in her chart too. Um, this is so interesting because I have Venus and Scorpio. So, I mean, I have, I have Venus and Mercury and Uranus and Scorpio, but yeah, I love that combination. And I love really just like air and fire matched with Scorpio. I mean, <laughs> it's a little unfair. I'm a little biased because I also have that in my chart, but I love it for exactly the reason that you're talking about, especially like having prominent Libra, because with Libra, we really do, um, we really are so interested in this connection, right? Libra rules the seventh house of partnership. So we're really like these one-on-one -on -one connections feel really good for us, which I all like as a therapist, that's what you do, right? Anytime when I write horoscopes, I, I'm also an astrologer. And when I write horoscopes, and I talk about the seventh house, people usually talk about it as like the house of marriage, because that's a one-on-one -on -one partnership, best friends, of course, because that's a one-on-one -on -one partnership. But I also always talk about therapists when I talk about the seventh house, because that's also a very important, very deep one-on-one -on -one partnership. So yeah, I love like bringing Libra into that, like having fire energy with Libra and then the Scorpio to go really deep. I think it's like such a beautiful therapeutic combo. So yeah, I'm so thrilled that you're here and yeah, let's do it. I'm going to get into my experience with feeling stuck while I do that. Feel free to jump in with thoughts, ideas, travel hacks. Since you have that Leo rising, you know, any important travel hacks you need us to know, or you can just chill out, order delivery, meditate, whatever. Either way, I'll turn some questions over to you at the end. How does that sound? Sounds amazing. Can't wait. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Cool. Okay, here we go. I'm sure I'm not going to blow any minds by saying this, but for those of us who grew up in abusive homes, unhappy homes, confusing homes, lonely homes, whatever it looked like, we were stuck. For me, I so clearly remember this feeling that I didn't know how to articulate and didn't 
didn't articulate maybe even until now, maybe now is the first time I've ever talked about it, but it was like, there was this weight on my chest. I think I was maybe six or seven the first time I experienced it. And I would feel it when I would think about how I wanted to get out of my house. And then I would realize that there was no way out, right? Like I, I couldn't leave. It was just this heavy, oppressive feeling in my chest. So that was one of the first times that I can remember feeling stuck. And what's so funny about it is that I didn't really realize that that's what was happening. And of course, I didn't realize that that feeling was getting sort of hardwired into me, not just from those moments of wanting to leave, but also because there was just this air of stuckness in this family, this energy of stuckness. And one of the ways that that would show up was through spousification and parentification, which if you're not familiar with those terms, I have two episodes on parentification that also talks about spousification that you can check out. My mom has her own mental health challenges. And one way that that showed up for us was that she would unleash really big emotions on us. She would cry and ask us like, why didn't anyone want to marry her? And why didn't she have a husband? And why had my dad abandoned us? This was, this was happening when I was really little, right? I was like, you know, five. And the way that it made me feel was that there was something I needed to do to fix the situation. But... <laughs> I was five, you know, there was nothing I was going to be able to do to get my mom in a happy relationship, right? Or to be happy, period, because my mom was in the throes of her own untreated mental health struggles. But I tried, of course, I tried comforting my mom. I tried telling her that I would be her boyfriend. I tried crawling in her lap and like hugging her. I tried praying because my grandma had told me that God listens to your prayers and brings you what you ask for. So I asked for my mom to get a boyfriend and nothing I did made any difference. So really early in my life, I learned that situations were kind of hopeless. Nothing I did fixed my mom's erratic behavior. Nothing made a man swoop in and become her boyfriend and make her life wonderful. Nothing just like there was no fix it. I remember in my teen years, my mom having a despair spiral and she was just sobbing and saying, I'm never going to be okay. I'm never going to be okay. I'm never going to be okay. So just energetically growing up, there was a lot of feeling stuck, like stuck in trying to fix what felt like an unfixable situation, which I think is how a lot of parentified and spousified kids feel, or even just like abused kids. Right. And also stuck in this kind of emotional prison where there was always depression and rage and unpredictable, scary reactions. And I think as a result of that, I came into adulthood feeling victimized a lot. And what I mean by that, like, I don't mean that I was always the victim of every situation. I mean that I would feel disempowered by situations all the time. I would just be like, well, there's nothing I can do. I can't do anything about this. And I would feel this tremendous powerlessness. It would show up for me in work scenarios a lot. I remember when I lived in San Francisco, I got a job waiting tables at this restaurant and my boss was just a fucking emotional terrorizer. He was so fucking mean and he would treat me so abuse, like verbally abusively. 
that I would park my car down the street from the restaurant 20 minutes before my shift started so that I could sob for 15 minutes and then take five minutes to put myself together. Like I'd put on this Paul Simon song and then just sob with fear and dread because I knew my shift was about to be so awful. At the time, I was in Al-Anon, which is a 12-step program for the friends and family of alcoholics. And I remember my sponsor being so solution-oriented about it and just being like, can you get another job? Can you talk to him about it? Can you stand up to him? Can you like X, Y, Z? Just putting options out. And I was like, no, I have to keep this job. I can't talk to him because he's so mean. I just have to like endure this basically. I was committed to the situation as bad as the situation was because in certain ways, this wasn't really new for me. I hated it, but I was accustomed to powerlessness. And I was also accustomed to people screaming at me, right? I was miserable. I definitely wasn't numb to the situation and I felt super stuck, but I was really blind to my own power to affect any change. It took me something like 15 months or something crazy to get a new job. And that only happened because my friend's sister was working at a restaurant that was hiring and they told me about it. I could have been looking for a new job that whole time, but I just wasn't. I just stayed stuck. Years later, I moved to LA after I graduated fashion school and I was squatting in the house that my mom's boyfriend was trying to sell. They had moved out of LA. So here I am, I'm squatting in this house because I can't find a job and I can't afford LA rent, but I was hustling so hard. I was applying to every design ad I found. I was taking bullshit jobs, like temp jobs, trying to make some money. I was cold calling design houses about jobs. I was just beside myself trying to get hired somewhere. And I was getting nowhere. This had been going on for months. I think at that point, this is like six months in, six months of busting my ass, doing everything I could think of and getting nowhere at all. And I remember having this full on meltdown in my car one day where I just started screaming at God. I was crying so hard, sobbing, just screaming. Why aren't you helping me? I'm doing everything I know how to do. And you're giving me nothing, just like screaming at God. When I look back on that, I can see that I was deeply triggered in that moment. One, I was broke and was only doing okay because I was squatting for free in this house. And money stuff was such a trigger for me, especially back then. But also part of my story around feeling stuck. And I've talked about this so many times on the pod, but it was this feeling of like, God had everyone else's back, but not mine, which right, by the way, started with me praying for my mom to get a boyfriend and then it not happening. So I was freaking out about money, which is also about safety. And then I was also freaking out about feeling shunned by God or cast out or something, you know, like unwanted, unsupported, by the way, my mom, as as you can tell from the story, she did eventually get a, a boyfriend. It just took like 20 years. So it's a really stuck feeling to feel like you're in a paradigm where the entity in charge of the entire universe is actively working against you, right? So even though the situation was, I'm stuck because I can't get a job, which also makes me financially stuck, which makes me feel unsafe. The deeper stuckness was I'm stuck in a world where God doesn't help me. So I'm on my own 
And so I can't really succeed. Nothing I do works because I'm not one of God's chosen ones. That was what was really behind that meltdown that day. Zero trust in the process, right? Like none trust. (laughs) What's interesting is that in retrospect, I actually eventually just took charge of that situation. I sat down and I was like, okay, I am flailing AF. I need to just pick a direction and, and go in it. So if I could work at any design house, where would it be? And then I just cold called or I cold emailed, I guess, this designer I really liked and asked if they needed an intern, which they did. So they took me on and I worked for free for them for a while. And eventually they hired me. And that getting to that point just created this calm in me. Like now I had a purpose. I had money coming in, very little money, but it was like money. I had a routine. I wasn't doing this shitty temp job that I hated where I was just like answering phones that made me feel like I had gone to fashion school for nothing. (laughs) I was on a path that felt relevant to my passion. I was working towards something I wanted and things really just unfolded from there. A couple of years later from that jumping off point, I got myself into a job that I was super excited about. That example was situational, but sometimes we feel stuck emotionally and in our thought patterns. The way that that's shown up for me most prominently has been in being single, which is also situational and also not. And I'll explain what I mean. If you've been listening to the pod for a while, you know that I've never been in a serious relationship, right? Or I should say, as my my therapist would have just uh, interrupted me and said, I haven't yet been in a serious relationship. And there's been just, just so much grief for me around it and frustration and confusion and this feeling of being stuck, especially Because over the years, I've just sort of watched friend after friend pair off and get married. And there's been such a deep feeling of this will never end. This will never happen for me. I'm super powerless. I'm stuck. Which, by the way, all of that kind of thinking really echoes the things that my mom would say. Like, I'll never have a husband. I'll never be okay. Right? She had this real um, black and white doomsday kind of mentality. That's that's really common to, to people who have endured trauma and like it's traumatized thinking, right? My brain does the same thing. The truth is that sometimes there are things we can do to change our circumstances, but sometimes there aren't, right? Like I can go out and meet people and put myself out there, which I do, but I can't make myself meet someone I hit it off with. Maybe you're in a situation where circumstantially You don't want to be there, but you also can't leave somehow or can't change the situation to make it what you want it to be. Let me T.O. on the single thing for a second. I'll come back to it, but I want to tell this story. When I was working at the job that I eventually got in the fashion industry that I was so excited about, there were maybe six months in there where I had to work under this woman who was a fucking nightmare. She was a liar. She was manipulative. She was a textbook narcissist who wouldn't let anyone tell a story about themselves without her like rerouting it and making it about her. She was an underhanded opportunist and she actively hated me and would try to sabotage me. And there was nothing I could do about it. Both of these examples being perpetually single and being in the clutches of this witch woman, which I know is not like... (laughs) I know this isn't, you know, my most healed, highest vibration version of myself calling her witch woman, but 
I really like went through it with this lady. Anyway, being being in her clutches in this job that I otherwise really liked and didn't want to leave. Both of those were so closely linked to stories I had about myself and about life. Being single, the mantra has been love and family is for other people, but not for me, which incidentally is exactly how I felt growing up. So this is totally traumatized thinking. With this witch lady, the thinking was, it's not safe to stand up for myself. So I just have to take this, which of course was also super rooted in my family and also showed up for me with that crazy boss that I'd had when I was living in San Francisco. But growing up, I was the people pleaser of the family. And I certainly was not allowed to be angry at authority figures or be direct with them in any way, right? Like I just had to take it. While I was working under this woman, I was also going to this emotional intelligence boot camp thing. And I was learning that I often defaulted to powerlessness. This wasn't one of those like Tony Robinson inspirational things, but kind of, you know, where they're like, take charge of your life. And they kind of like yell in your face and make you do weird shit. Anyway, it was kind of a cult, this boot camp thing, but I did learn a lot from it. And one of the things that I realized in my situation with this woman at work was that because she was so underhanded and pushy and because I didn't trust her, I wasn't being direct with her. I had become passive aggressive in my relationship with her. It didn't mean that she wasn't being shitty. It just meant I wasn't totally in integrity on my end. And so I took control of what I did have control over and I pulled her aside and I apologized to her for that. I didn't take responsibility for anything that I didn't feel wasn't mine to own, but I did own my end of things. I cleaned up my side of the street and it super shifted the situation. I think she misunderstood it. Of course, being a, a narcissist, that's my you know armchair therapist opinion that she was a narcissist. I think she thought I was deferring to her, which was what she wanted. And that's fine that she misunderstood that because my goal wasn't in relationship to her anymore, right? Like my goal wasn't to win, to teach her a lesson, to oppose her in any way, to fight her, to come out on top. It was to be honest with myself and in integrity with myself. And that involved an apology to her. And after I did that, she started treating me differently. And not long after someone came in and replaced her in that position. And of course, soon after that, she left the company because she didn't like that. But what I learned from that experience was that I would often go into a space of powerlessness without even realizing it because it was so comfortable for me. It's what I felt all the time growing up. I can't speak up. I'm at the mercy of these really intense, scary, unpredictable, um, you know, narcissistic people, and I don't have power. So as an adult, I would also just think, well, there's nothing I can do about this. So either I wouldn't do anything at all, or I would be really passive aggressive and unclear in my communication. Figuring out that I had control over that aspect really impacted the dynamics of that shitty situation. In my experience being single, let's go back. That one's a little different because the thing I felt like I was fighting against was either God or like all men <laughs> as a unit. Sometimes I felt like I couldn't find a relationship because God didn't love me and actively worked against me, right? The same stuff that had 
come up for me in other areas of my life, right? Like God doesn't love me. And that's why I'm always going to be single. I'll never have a loving relationship. And then other times I felt like I'll never find anyone because men are all emotionally stunted and they don't like emotional women or they don't like smart women. They don't like outspoken women. They don't like commitment. They just want to get laid. They just use women for sex. Whatever those stories sounded like in the moment. And there were lots of them. And I'll say there was a lot of anger for me in that, but it was one of those classic scenarios where the anger was masking pain. And I don't always think that that's what anger is doing, but in that scenario, it is what it was doing. The real story behind that was men don't want me, which was heartbreakingly similar to another story of mine that I'd had growing up, which was my dad doesn't want me. If you've been listening to the pod for a long time, you already know that my dad, um, I mean, what do I want to say? My dad didn't love me. I mean, I guess is like, I think my dad also undiagnosed, but I think it's pretty clear as a narcissist um, was really mean, was really rageful, was really scary. Unlike my mom, my dad didn't have any moments where there was connection. With my mom, it was like really unpredictable because there was uh, intense rage, intense emotion, and then like connection afterwards. My dad, it was just like intense rage and then nothing, right? So the stories about men that I created really echoed the story that I had about my dad. And by the way, my therapist one time, one time tried to be like, but guys hit on you all the time. She's always trying to help me reframe. And she was like, guys hit on you all the time. And I was so shocked that she said that because I was like, who fucking cares? I'm not saying guys don't want to fuck me. I'm saying guys don't want to love me. And that was the true heartbreak for me. That's the part that stemmed right from my relationship from my dad. That feeling of not being seen through eyes of love by men. The same way that my dad hadn't seen me through eyes of love. Of course, I wasn't aware of any of this while I was in these thoughts. They just all seemed reflective of the re- the reality I was experiencing, which is how we come to understand what truth is, right? We base truth on the experiences we have. So if your experience is being used by men for sex repeatedly or being cheated on or being lied to or whatever, then your truth becomes men lie to women, men use women for sex. That's just my example, but that's true, I think, for us in any experience that we're having. And of course, if we've been abused, then our truth becomes uh, a validation of whatever trauma we experienced. For me, I would look around though and see that not all women were having that experience. Of course, many were, right? Like, it's not like I was the only one, but there were a lot of other women who weren't. So I was stuck in this loop that I couldn't get out of and I couldn't figure out why. Obviously, this is something I'm still working through because I'm still single. But one thing I'll say about my journey through this is that for most of my life, I felt really powerless to men. Growing up, my dad would bounce between being mean and scary and a, and a bully and then like being aloof and not giving a shit, right? So either I felt overpowered by him or I felt like I had no power to make him approve of me or like be affectionate with me. And that powerlessness 
was a huge part of my story with cishet men. On top of it, it's not like I was only carrying personal trauma with men. There's major systemic trauma also. I always say, in my opinion, feminism is a trauma response. It's a cultural trauma response to the cultural phenomenon of the patriarchy. The feeling of being powerless to men and subjected to um, men's callousness wasn't just something that I grew up with. It's something I've also experienced as a woman in the patriarchy. I know there are some people out there who will say that none of us are victims, that you choose to be a victim. Personally, I don't think that's true. Sometimes we just are victims who have been perpetrated against, right? And for me, that has been true in my personal relationships as much as it's been true in my relationship to the culture. And at the same time, I've been able to make headway in my relationships with men as I've been able to create space for more complexity. And also as I've been able to hold more space for my own personal power, I don't feel any more like cishet men are all anything. There are definitely misogynistic men in the world. And there are definitely men who use women for sex, right? Like toxic masculinity is real. There are also some really wonderful, loving, accountable, emotionally available men. And there are also men who are emotionally unavailable and engaging in shitty dating behaviors like lying and gaslighting and whatever. And none of that is personal to me. None of that is a reflection of me in any way. It's a reflection of them. And I hold them accountable for that. But them behaving that way doesn't take my power away anymore the way that it used to, because I totally understand now that it has nothing to do with me. So me working with my power and feeling stuck in perpetual singlehood hasn't been about the outward circumstance of whether I'm in a relationship or not, but about the internal work of seeing how I've come to the energetic table saying I'm powerless and then questioning that. I may be powerless to make the relationship of my dreams appear, but I have power in how I'm working internally with myself and my trauma and my wounded perceptions. And I think doing that does eventually change outside circumstances. I don't know what that will look like, but I do know that I've already seen changes in the way I relate to romance, whether or not I take things personally, how I experience men and how I take care of myself in dating. So in other words, Sometimes being stuck isn't about the move you make in the outside world, right? But about how you use that situation to push yourself in new directions within your emotional landscape. And that's true of any situation you feel stuck in. Not, you know, my mine happens to be about being single, but for other people, it could look any different way. So let's talk more about healing through being stuck in a situation because there are a few things. I can offer here from my experience. One is I've introduced a new question into these moments. I started thinking recently about how I hold space for myself when nothing I've done seems to be working. It's different than what do I do to get the thing I want when I feel stuck and not able to get the thing I want. I've changed the question to what do I need when I'm in a space of feeling like I've given a situation all I have and I'm not seeing the results I want, how do I take care of myself in that scenario? How do I talk to myself? Instead of trying to force something or going into a despair spiral, 
about how nothing I do ever works and God hates me and I'm not supported in this world or whatever the story is, I realize that I can pause and rest and really be like, okay, fuck yeah, Rem, you've done so much. That's really cool. You're really awesome for doing all that, right? That's the first thing. I acknowledge all my efforts. I often didn't feel seen, right? Growing up, I didn't feel acknowledged. And so that's a wound that comes up for me. I need to feel seen for the work I've done. So I do that. I acknowledge myself. Another thing that I often need when I'm in that space is to have a talk with those voices that tell me that things aren't happening the way I want them to because the universe, God, whatever it is, doesn't love me and I'm unlucky and unloved. Your story might sound different. Maybe it's like, this is happening because no one wants me or because I'm stupid or because there's something wrong with me. Whatever the case, for me now, it's about becoming aware of those voices. I don't just grab their hand and like trot down the path with them anymore because I realize now that they're just really young, wounded versions of myself that are still grieving the fact that I couldn't fix my mom and I didn't have the power to make the adults in my world okay and I couldn't make them love me or be nice to me or calm down or whatever, right? I know that those little Remy's are still in there like freaking out. So I can do things like, put my hand over my heart and say, I hear you. I know this is scary for you. I know you feel despair. I know things haven't always worked out in the past, even when you tried really hard. And I know that that hurt you. What do you need right now? And then I listen to what the voice tells me. Sometimes she, I can just see like little Remy in there. She's just like, I just need to cry to, to just have it be okay to cry and feel sad and feel scared. So I create that space and then inevitably I feel better, right? Like I can't even tell you the amount of times I've been like, it's cool. Everything's cool. And then I get in the shower and I'm like, it's not cool. And I just like, let myself be not cool. You know, I just cry it out. Another thing that helps sometimes is writing out a list of times when I've worked hard for something and it did pay off and I did get the exact thing I wanted because those moments are real, right? Like they've happened in my life, but the scared, anxious child inside me needs to be seen and soothed for her anxiety and freak out and meltdown before I can try to reframe the situation for myself mentally. I need to address that core fear and anxiety first. So I'm not just on a hamster wheel of toxic positivity trying to be like, everything's fine. So I check in with her first and then I can make that list after. The other thing I want to offer is a new thing I've been working with that a listener, a Pachama listener shared with me, shout out to Joanna for this wisdom that she shared, which can be applied to really any situation, but I've been using it in particular with this area of my life. And that is to feel your feelings without going into the story that's attached to them, which is kind of what I was just talking about, but I think it can look a lot of different ways. For me, I just love this idea of being like, okay, I hear the story. The story is that God doesn't love me and doesn't have my back. And therefore nothing I do will ever pay off and it'll never work. And I'm stuck forever in this, but I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to be in the feeling and the feeling is grief or the feeling is fear and anxiety or the feeling is loneliness, 
loneliness comes up for me a lot in these stuck scenarios. I mean, it comes up everywhere, but it comes up for me in the stuck scenario because I often feel abandoned by God, right? Like that was my big story is I'm abandoned by God. And like, I'm all alone in this world without support. So I can be in the feeling of loneliness and grief and intentionally cut ties with the story that that means the universe has abandoned me or I'll never get what I want. I can just let it go. And when I do that, I can focus in on soothing myself through that emotion in this moment. But if I'm in the story, then I'm nose diving into despair because the story was created from a space of despair and powerlessness. And now I can actively choose not to engage with that. I can recognize that I was five. (laughs) I was five when I created that story for the first time. And I had really limited information and resources at five years old. I wanted to offer another technique that I love that Renee Tate, um, a therapist I've had on a few times, recommended on the episode about taking things personally. She talked about a meditation practice. She, I can't remember if she created it or if she uses it, but it's where she envisions the version of herself who has already worked through this issue and successfully gotten to the other side. And she asked that version of herself, hey, what did you learn? in getting to where you are now? What can you teach me? What should I know, right? How did you do it? What worked? What didn't work? I think that's such a brilliant practice in general, but especially when we feel stuck because it because it's so important to remember that there's a version of ourselves who can cross this hurdle and who can help us get where we want to go. Maybe not overnight, but eventually. And the last thing I'll share is the piece I took away from my struggle with getting into the fashion industry all those years ago. If you can, and sometimes you can't, but if you can get in touch with a direction that feels good, right? That feels like possibility. What's the move that you can make to affect change in your outward world and your outside circumstance that feels like possibility, And move in that direction. Take one step in that direction. You don't have to know for a fact that it's going to get you exactly where you want to go. But there's an intuitive process that happens when we can feel into something that feels exciting or supportive or ripe with possibility. Even if we don't know what the like what the full story looks like, what the full journey looks like. A lot of us had the intuition abused out of us at a young age, especially if we experience gaslighting, but our two intuition is there and it's there for a reason, right? Like it can help us. Sometimes we have to wait for it. And I, I want to say that because I think it's important. I truly think there are times when we don't feel guidance and that I think means that the timing isn't right for us to make the move. But if we do feel that, If we do feel that, like, what is the one step of possibility that I can take right now? Like for me, it was like, okay, I'm just going to intern at a place that I like. I'm just going to do that for a while because I don't have to pay rent right now. And I can take that step. If we do feel that sort of intuitive next step amidst all the chaos of frustration and despair and fear, Work with that feeling. Go toward that thing. Okay, Zara, how are you doing over there? You know what, Remy? First, the first thing that's coming up for me is your profound vulnerability. 
and how everything that you're saying has woven so beautifully in to my own conceptualization of stuckness. And so as you were speaking and sharing your story, I, I was just like bookmarking all of these really beautiful and truthful aspects that you've spoken to. And that I like, I just can't wait to like bring into the discussion and to elaborate off of. So yeah, I'm, I'm doing amazing. <laughs> Thanks for checking in. And I'm, yeah, I just would love to continue to, to build off of your own personal story because there's something so um, resonant about what you're saying. And I think even though an individual's experiences might be different or my personal experiences might be different, there's a through line and a sense of like, yeah, this feels true for me too. Or there's something about this that perhaps is a universal experience, especially when we're talking about stuckness, because I, yeah, as children, we were to a certain extent powerless. And so anyone who's experienced trauma knows what it's like to have that sense of loss of agency to not feel like you can change your circumstance and, and almost like you might not want to either, because I think we all, all of us have experienced maybe some sense of unconscious allegiance to our caregivers or our parents. So if we were to break that mold or step out of the family dynamic, then we would actually be betraying what's there and where the love comes from in some way. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to continue to build off your story and, and everything that you're sharing. Oh my God. I could not relate harder to what you just said about, yeah, sometimes we actually subconsciously want to stay stuck in our patterns because that's what has kept us safe for so long. And we're not seeing that staying in that in an attempt to get love is sabotaging us in so many other ways and keeping us stagnant in all these other ways. Oh my God. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Okay. Well, let me just dive in and we can bring all these pieces in. Let me ask you this. Is there a connection in your experience with people who've experienced chronic trauma, like maybe in childhood and a sense of being stuck? In other words, if we've been abused or suffering from CPTSD, is there more of a tendency to feel stuck? Yeah. Um, I think that's such an important question. And I think like unequivocally, yes. And I think like a really beautiful way to frame the why of that is to, to approach it from like a body-based space. And I consider myself more of a holistic therapist, which essentially means that in my practice, I incorporate mind, body, soul. Like there's, there's really that drive or the desire to unify those aspects. And, and when I think about the body, I think about the nervous system and when we've experienced chronic stress, AKA trauma, or we have a, a diagnosis of CPTSD, our nervous system has attempted to understand that and regulate that experience since, since, you know, potentially the moment we were born. And I'm not sure if you or your listeners are familiar with the polyvagal theory by Stephen Porges, but essentially it's, it's a way that um, our body, our nervous system kind of is organized into three different states and it's the fight flight, um, safety and connection, or more of like a shutdown and dissociated state. And that's related to different phases of our, our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. And when we've experienced chronic stress or this experience of being stuck in our circumstances, our nervous system protects itself by shutting down. If any, I think there's some videos on YouTube, which I would highly recommend people watching of like a, a gazelle or a mouse that's cornered by a predator. And it, it goes into a freeze state or almost like a play dead state. 
and humans share nervous systems with animals, right? So we also have that tendency to go into shutdown when that mobilizing or survival force to fight or flee has been taken away from us. And so when I think about stuckness, I think about the the actual nervous system experience of life force energy leaving and everything coming online to conserve energy, to um, mitigate pain, to almost like fracture and dissociate. So we, we actually survive something almost unsurvivable. And I know this all kind of sounds pretty intense, right? But But to a small human, like when I think of childhood trauma, any sort of threat to our personhood or our survival can be that intense. It can mean that we need to go into that conservation state in order to stay um, alive. Mm. And so it's like a shutdown state. Totally. Yeah, totally like a shutdown state. And people experience that in different ways, but some some symptoms could be like chronic depression, chronic fatigue, chronic pain, um, like loss of, of agency or feeling like you're immobilized and suck. Some people could experience like full on dissociation. And it's it, to me, that's like one of the most profound ways that our bodies has kept us safe. So I, I like to invite in compassion when we talk about this, because it's like this isn't something that your body has done that's wrong or that is in service of harming you. It's actually the most deepest evolutionary wiring of safety and survival. And even if we start this conversation on stuckness with like inviting that perspective in that, like what if stuckness actually in its origin is some sort of survival response or some sort of like mechanism that has been enlisted to keep us safe from something that has felt so deeply threatening. Oh, wow. When I was listening to you talk and I was thinking about all the ways that I haven't voiced my needs and all the ways that I've been afraid in my life to be like, hey, I'm not okay with this. Like when I think about that woman um, who I had all those issues with and I was working with, she was a very challenging person for me. But because she was so, um, she scared me, right? Like her, the way she, that she showed up was really triggering for me. But instead of me being like, hey, I wanted to let you know that this is where I'm, where I stand with this thing. And this is like how I'm going to show up just to let you know so that there isn't confusion between us. I would try to figure out these backdoor ways of getting my needs met because I didn't feel safe. And I just think about all the ways that I've done that in my life, all the ways that it wasn't safe for me to just be like, hey, because you lied about this thing, now I can't really trust you. And therefore, here are the things that aren't going to work for me going forward. Like, this is more of how I've been showing up like in the last year, but it has been such a, a journey to just get me to a place where I could be really upfront and direct about my feelings and like all of the ways that that has shut me off to possibility, all the ways that I have like shut down my agency. I love what you said earlier about, I mean, talk about disrupting the fucking family dynamic when you show up and you're like, Hey, this doesn't work for me. You lying, you taking advantage of me you attacking me verbally, none of that shit's going to fly anymore. Whoa. Yeah. The family dynamic, <laughs> like, especially 
you know, you being a Libra might, might also uh, relate to this, but I have a Libra moon. And so we are like the people pleasing is the shadow side of Libra. And there's a real tendency to just want to like make the conflict go away, make everything okay. And we'll think about us later that uh, taking care of us means taking care of everybody else. That's how we stay safe. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. I, I, I love that as well. And, and I totally resonate that in a way like that people pleasing aspect is it's part of that, that nervous system arc. It's like, if I can't fight, if I can't flee, then I'm going to shut down. And part of that shutdown also includes like a please aspect. It's like, maybe I will give you what you need. So then therefore I I retain some control over the situation or some sense of safety. And there's a wonderful, um, I'm sure you're familiar, maybe Dr. Gabra Maté, does that name ring a bell? No, do tell. Yeah, he's a, um, a medical doctor um, out of in Canada, and he's done some incredible work in the realm of trauma and addiction. And when he says this thing that just like lands in the body in such a beautiful way, it's like when humans are given the choice between attachment or authenticity, we choose attachment every time it just hits because if we maintain agency, if we, if we maintain that sense of self, that is threatening to the family dynamic because that means we're naming what's unnameable. It means we're calling dad out for his behavior. It means that we're saying like, Hey, that thing that's in the shadows, it needs to be named. But if we did that, that would threaten our very security and safety. So we learn to self-abandon. And we learn to keep love and we learn to do that at all costs. And so the, the healing, I think, as we grow and develop and change and, and um, come home to ourselves is about reclaiming that, that lost authenticity that's been fragmented um, because we had to, right. That's the piece that is so foundational to all trauma work. It's like you had to, in order to survive this thing that happened to you or, or these many things that happened to you. Yeah. And we're not even aware. We're just like in it. Oh my God. I love that. So, I mean, I had to take a deep breath when you said that about choosing between authenticity and attachment, not just in my family, but I think about in romantic situations as well, man, that's been so true. It was so true for me for such a long time. Let's say we're in a situation where we've done absolutely everything we can think of to try to like get ourselves where we want to be, but nothing's working. For many of us, that can cause our trauma brains to kick into high gear with despair. How can we show up for ourselves in a different way in those moments? Yeah, I think that is, to me, I mean, that's the real potent question in all of this, because I guess what's coming to mind is all of us know, kind of know the experience of trying to push through something. Um, And your story feels like you really spoke to that. It was like, I tried to change my circumstances. I I tried it like so hard, but I, I felt like I couldn't. And the piece that like, I, yeah, I guess I want to speak to or invite in is, is like this soul element because when we've tried everything and there's still no movement or that despair is really sinking in, I guess I hold that as like, this is a calling. This is a a calling into a deeper relationship with yourself. There is a a part of you that has been abandoned or lost. There's a soul on the other side of this experience. 
And what if the despair or the this like stuckness that does not shift and cannot move is actually here because there's something to move through? Like when you're saying like, I, yeah, I, I, I reached out to this place and I cold called this fashion agency. When you were speaking to that, I was like, oh, you were getting in touch with something deeper in yourself. Like there was like a calling or a, a remembering or uh, an aliveness that happened for you that helped shift that stuckness. And I think we, we fear the descent into that soul level space because it's scary and it's unknown and it's, it's new territory, right? It, um, there's a psychotherapist, Joseph Campbell, who talks a lot about what's called the hero's journey. It's kind of the framework for like most myths and stories. And, and it really, it holds like there's a call to action. And then there's this bridging of the known world and the unknown world. And to me, like that sense of despair or this stuckness or this experience that does not move is the calling to like the unknown world. And, and in that unknown space, I think there's there's the parts of us that have had to be or that have been left because of our childhood experiences that that could not stay um, alive because of of what we lived through and the pain that we we experienced. So it to me, it's like a reclamation and a going towards the parts of ourselves and the aspects that have been lost and forgotten. And yeah, I'm curious how that lands for you. Well, I I had never thought of. First of all, I'd never thought of that, but I had never thought of that moment where I was reaching out and and I was just like, okay, this is a, a place of possibility. This is a design house that I really admire. And it would be so cool for me to work here. I know they're not going to just hire me. I have no experience. I'm going to try this other thing. It had never occurred to me that that was me answering a calling inside myself. And I when I think about that now and I think about intuition and sort of what I had mentioned about intuition, I think sometimes what happens to us as trauma survivors is we get possibility and hope beaten out of us, maybe sometimes literally or other times metaphorically, you know, figuratively, but, but it feels so unsafe to be hopeful and to move toward possibility be, and I like, uh, this is, this is a raw thing for me now, man. I, I was, I was really holding it together. Um, but it's something I've really tapped into recently is that, wow, I do have a lot of, um, I have a lot of fear around, moving around being hopeful and moving toward possibility because there have been times in my life when I did that and I, and when I didn't, when it wasn't met right with like what I wanted, I went into such a space of despair and that's like part of being resilient, right? When we're resilient, because we aren't super traumatized or we've worked through that trauma when those, when those deep disappointments happen, we can, we can be like, collect ourselves, take a minute, go back into a space of hopefulness and try again. But when it was so unsafe for us to be hopeful and to live in possibility, we don't, (laughs) 
we don't try. We don't get back up and think of a, we don't become solution oriented or, and I know for me, like, this is something I've been working with, with my angels a lot is that I keep telling them it needs to feel safer for me to hope. Like I need a, I need buoyancy in hopefulness. I need buoyancy and possibility so that I can keep making hopeful choices and making decisions rooted in possibility. And like, I think that speaks to what you're talking about in this calling and this soulfulness. When I reached out to that um, company and was like, Hey, could I just work for you for free then? That was a choice that was rooted in possibility. And it was a choice that was rooted in hopefulness. And I had never really thought about that before. I had never thought about that being sort of a soulful choice and a choice that was coming from that intuitive feeling of what gives me spark, what gives me excitement, what brings me joy. Yeah. There's so much there that I, I really love. And, and the piece about intuition, it has to be named, right? It's like we lose our sense of self or we lose that connection to our felt sense of right and wrong and our intuitive knowing when we've experienced trauma um, because like you said earlier, like either that's been gaslighted out of you or there was secrecy or it was like in order to actually stay safe and remain in this family dynamic or this situation, I, I have to turn that off. And it, it reminds me again of like the attachment over authenticity. I feel like intuition lives with authenticity, but in order to remain attached, we have to shut down those things that tell us that maybe this is wrong or unsafe. And so I, I want to pause to repeat something you said that I think is so good that I really want, I, I want it to land for people. And that is intuition lives in authenticity. Intuition lives in authenticity. So if we're not practicing authenticity, we are unintentionally, I'm sure, eroding our intuition. That is so powerful. That's such a, I mean, how many people know that they're doing that, right? When they're faking it, when they're going through the motions, when they're not telling people when they're pissed or when something isn't working or when like, hey, I know that you lied about this or whatever the situation is, if we're not voicing that, we are actively working against our ability to intuitively feel what connects us to the life we want, to the joy, to the possibility. Yeah. Sorry. I just, I had to like take a minute for that. Cause that was really good. Yeah, no, I, I love, I love that highlight. And, and I also maybe want to invite in compassion there. That's like, if you are actively people pleasing, or if you feel like you are still in that space of, of needing to, but yeah, or like, not, I felt like you can't, you can't listen or you don't know where that intuition is it's not one more thing that I think we have to do better or strive for. It's like in the natural unfolding and deep intelligence of the healing process, if our intention is to start to reconnect to the lost parts of ourselves or the abandoned parts of ourselves, that does come alive. It's like the spontaneous emergence of that felt sense and that intuition as we approach this healing work. So I think 
anyone who's experienced trauma, we already have those like negative schemas and, and negative core beliefs about ourselves. And, and to me, the trauma work is always about holding those with such grace and compassion. Cause it's like, these are the things you had to do to survive. And these behaviors and patterns and way of being are not about you not being enough or feeling like you, you aren't living up to some other standard or ideal. It's like that on authenticity piece will happen, will emerge as you continue to lean in and do that work. Yeah. It's like when I first got into, uh, any form of therapy, which wasn't therapy, I was in Al-Anon for a really long time before I went to therapy, but Al-Anon is like a sort of a form of therapy or whatever. But I would, I remember my sponsor being like, you don't have to get an A plus in Al-Anon. Cause I was like, I'm going to do all the things and I'm going to knock this shit out and I'm going to be really good at it and I'm going to heal. And I'm going to, and she was like, you, this is something that will take time and you don't have, you're, you're not in school. No one's grading you, but yeah, I love that because it's, a lot of us do have that tendency to be like, I have to get an A plus in this. I have to do it perfectly. And yeah, you're right. It's not about you fucked this up. It's not that. It's like, let's bring this to our awareness, introduce this into our healing practice now. Like this is new information and it's so helpful. And yeah, you're not going to get it right the first time or maybe the second, third, fourth, fifth, you know, it's like, man, I'm telling you me getting away from people pleasing tendencies it's taken so long to get me where I am. So yeah, I love that you brought that in. And I'm sorry, I, I cut you off. I wanted to say that. Yeah, no, it, it's so okay. And what I'm thinking about is, is you just that question about like, when we've done everything and we still feel stuck, how do we hold that? How do we move through that? I'm playing off of what, something that you just brought in, which is like, what would it be like to get into a different relationship with stuckness? Like instead of it being this burden, this heavy powerlessness, despair soaked place. It's like, ah, oh, what about this is familiar to me? And what about this, this experience, this feeling is known and maybe what even about this is comfortable? Like how has this experience kept me safe in some way? How could this be framed like a call to a deeper relationship with myself. It's not about passive, like passivity and like just sitting in the experience. It's like, what about this could be actually active? It could be an active engagement that invites in some power and agency because it's like I, and some unconscious level might be choosing this. And how am I choosing this? And what is it doing for me spiritually, emotionally, from a body-based space so that I um, have something to heal. Like this is, this is the thing that I love so deeply about any healing work and the healing arts. It, it frames all of these processes, all of these symptoms as invitations to heal. And our, our bodies very much like our psyches are wired for healing. Like given the right conditions, they heal. It is miraculous and intelligent. And so stuckness to me also is that it's like, this is an invitation into some level of healing that maybe I haven't fully integrated yet. And what would it look like to hold it in a way that this is for my healing? This isn't some sort of like burdensome thing. And I, I want to be super clear. We do not manifest abuse. We do not manifest these situations that happen to us. It's like, and yet it's here. And so how can I approach this with 
a deeper sense of relationship. And how does that, how would that change the thing? Like, how is it changing the relationship with the thing actually changing the thing itself? Oh my God. And when you were saying that, I was thinking about the way that I think about God as being so oppositional to me and it being this like you against me. So me against the world kind of thing. And what if I reframed it as like, this is actually something that the universe has brought to me to help me heal. And I also was thinking about, man, what you said about what if, what if there's actually something about this stuckness that feels comfortable and safe for me? And I'm actually engaging with it in a way that keeps me here because I want to stay safe. And I, and I don't know that I'm doing that. And I just really, that is really going to give me something to think about in terms of this being single thing. You know, I think there certainly is a part of me that feels, well, I know there is, cause I've talked about it. There's a part of me that feels like men aren't safe. Like that's, even though I've done so much work around that and I know mentally it's not true. My dad was so scary growing up and he was like the one dude, you know, my introduction to masculinity was a terrifying introduction. And also, I mean, it's not just, it's not just my dad. It's like, I have genuinely had experiences in my life that have, it's like what I was saying about truth earlier, that the experiences we have teach us what the truth is, even if it's not true, but you know, I've been raped. I've been uh, cheated on. I've been the other woman without knowing it. I have been, um, you know, lied to uh, guys, gaslighting me. I've, I've been led on by married men who had no intention of being in a serious relationship with me. You know, I've, I've been sexually harassed by bosses. Like men haven't felt safe for me in so many ways, starting with my dad, but certainly not ending there. And I, when I talk about the patriarchy and I talk about um, the systemic sort of hatred of women I mean, recently I had a guy who I actually think is really a lovely person, but he said to me, if I'm not dating you seriously, I don't want to have to think about your feelings. And it's funny. I, I didn't take it personally, which was such a, like, I'm so proud of myself. That's, I feel really good about that. But I was reflecting later on that. I was like, so he just really said to my face, I want to just be able to objectify you. I don't want to have to, if I'm just sleeping with you and I'm not going to be in a relationship with you, then I don't want to have to think about you as a human. (laughs) And, and, and that is, um, and what I'm saying is when I was talking earlier about, I had never felt or known the experience of men looking on onto me with eyes of love that's not just true in my personal life it's it's part of the uh culture within a patriarchy culturally we don't look on women with eyes of love it's not just women right we don't look on queer people culturally with eyes of love in in our particular patriarchy in the united states we don't look on people of color with eyes of love and we and we don't we certainly don't look on women with eyes of love. We look on women with eyes of lust if you check certain boxes. But um, yeah, we don't look on 
women with eyes of love. And I have felt that I've experienced that. And I, yeah. So this idea of not feeling safe, it makes so much sense. And I think there is a part of me that's like, yeah, I'm scared of you guys. And I, and I want connection and I'm really scared. And I I remember, okay, so here, this is interesting. Like I was saying at one point, I'm really not flirtatious. I was like, I'm really not flirtatious. I was telling a girlfriend that, and she was like, well, you don't, you're not flirtatious with men, but you're really flirtatious with women. And I'm heterosexual. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, you'll walk up to women and be like, women, you don't know. And tell them how beautiful they are, how talented they are, how amazing they are. And I was like, oh, what I realized is that flirtation requires a sense of safety. I do that with women because I feel safe with women. When I am, And when I say women, I also... Yeah, no, I think it's women. Like I jet like women I feel safe with. And so I can walk up to a woman and be like, "You're beautiful, girl." Like, "Oh my god, your outfit, slay. Like you look incredible." I would never do that with men. And I've noticed that other women sort of like invite men in that way. Like they'll they'll just walk up to men and, you know, have this sort of flirtatious energy about them that's really inviting and lovely and of course probably you know sparks conversation and like romance or whatever potentially but yeah I noticed that I don't when she said that I really I was like whoa it's kind of a trauma response though like for a long time I thought I wasn't flirtatious because I was like cool I was like I'm not one of those girls right like I had this sort of snotty attitude about it but when I thought about it, I was like, oh, it's actually a trauma response that I'm not flirting with men because it is in me, that energy and that desire. I just direct it towards women because that's where I feel safe. This is so juicy, Remy. And what I'm, I'm yeah, I'm like, oh God, I just love this so much. I want to sink my teeth into it because it's, it's like when I think about the nervous system, that sense of feeling safe calm, connected with women is, is that's our parasympathetic nervous system state. Like that is rest and digest. That is attachment. That is I'm good in the world. That is, I feel connected to you and I feel safe with you. But when we start to get activated and maybe go into like more of a hyper aroused state, which is like that anxiety, or if we're under threat, like fight and flight, then we don't feel that sense of connection and capacity to flirt. And when I think of flirtation, I think of play and, and play is, the most profound sense of safety, right? It's like in order to feel, in order to play, you have to feel safe. And and then when we move into those other states, like we were talking about earlier, about like the more dissociative or stuck or shut down states, it really is that trauma response. It's like this person is so threatening to me and my, my felt sense or my implicit memory that either I'm going to shut down or I'm going to like fight back or be dismissive or um, want to run away. And that's so deeply hard- hardwired into our nervous system based off of our attachment experiences. Like, yeah, in, in relationship counseling, it's kind of like, wow, our relationships with our parents and caregivers really do set the stage for how we relate to intimate partners later down the line. And it's, it sounds Freudian, but it's also like based in like nervous system states in a really big way. 
So when you're saying like, yeah, I feel good with women, I feel safe with women. It's like, yeah, that's your body and your nervous system really landing in, in a parasympathetic state and that, that safety, that connected, that calm. Um, and so when I think of healing or like moving past that, it's like, we have to start to build that capacity to be with the discomfort and have disconfirming experiences, like being around people that maybe previously were threatening, but in this moment feel safe. And can I like really lean into that and bring awareness and, and intention towards that experience? Like, what is it like to feel safe in my body around a man? And can I bring more intention there or awareness there? And what is that like to be there? Like, it's, it's such a tough experience because we're really rewiring pathways, like old pathways. And, and it's the hard work. Like this is, this is the time when like healing needs a disclaimer and it's like, it is disruptive. It is disorienting. It will change your relationships. It may change your life. It is not easy. And like, oh God, that compassionate piece is so important there too, right? Because we won't always get it right. And that perfectionistic part wants to say like, let's get an A plus in healing. <laughs> it, it isn't possible. <laughs> It isn't the way forward and it just can't. Yeah, you're so right. Like the nervous system, of course. I don't think any of like we, this needs to be on Tinder somewhere, but like this relationship between your parasympathetic and flirting, never thought about that before, but that is so wild and it's so true. Oh, I love that so much. And maybe, maybe we've already covered this, but I do want to ask what are some of the ways or even the ways of being that can help us get unstuck and how, how do we draw on them? So there's a, a couple things that feel really potent. Um, we've talked about a lot, it a lot. We've woven it in a lot, but that self-compassion aspect, I think for trauma survivors is the work full stop. It is so hard to have grace and compassion when we've internalized so much shame and so much pain and so much hurt. So in that stuckness, that heaviness, that despair, just opening slightly to a different kind of relationship that invites in self-compassion, I think is one of the most healing things that we can do. Um, and it's hard, right? And and we don't jump from like self-loathing to self-love. It It is, that's too big a hop for the humans. It's like, we need to to work incrementally and, and slowly. And, and it's like, okay, if it's not self-loathing, then what would neutrality towards this experience feel like? And if it's, edging beyond neutrality, what would acceptance feel like? And it's just so like that slow ladder climb. So yeah, I feel called to just always highlight self-compassion. I think another really important piece is getting comfortable with discomfort as a practice. Like some of my most favorite adjunct aspects to therapy um, are like intentionally and powerfully engaging with things that are hard. So that might look like deep tissue massage that might look like moving your body in a really intense way. If that feels good for you, that might look like cold therapy, like cold plunges it might look like breath work. And it's like when we can invite agency. So like power and choice into conscious engagement with what's hard, then we also start to retell the story that, that when things are hard, we lose ourselves or that we have no choice or that if it's hard, then there's no way out. And I think in the therapeutic space, it's like that emotional processing component is so key because 
most humans, whether you've experienced trauma or not, are really wired to move away from anything that's painful. And from an evolutionary perspective, we know why that's true. It's like, we don't want to be with pain because pain is a broken bone or pain is a lion or pain is something that we don't want to be with. But in the healing space, we actually have to learn how to be with pain if we want to heal. And in thematic experiencing and, and some of the training that I have, there's a beautiful practice called pendulating or resourcing, which is when you are feeling dysregulated or in a state of stress and you can locate that in your body, instead of zeroing in on that space, see if you can locate something that feels like a space in, in your body that feels neutral or even pleasant to notice. And again, that can be really hard if we've lived a life feeling disembodied and disconnected from our felt sense. But I often find that it's the soles of the feet. So if you if you plant your feet on the floor and you can notice what it's like to feel your feet on the floor and then oscillate from feeling the emotional discomfort and the regulating discomfort. And you move your awareness from going from that space to the other space. And over time, if you're tracking the inner experience, you'll notice that things start to shift and move and eventually release. And that's the deep somatic trauma work. And if we can do that in our day-to-day, we start to engage and build capacity with pain and with what's hard. So when we find ourselves inevitably in places where we feel stuck or uncomfortable, we have that wiring or that remembering that I can do hard things. Like I can engage with what's hard. And I actually experience myself in a different way because when we're a child, and it's hard and it's painful, and we don't have that secure attachment and attuned other, it's incredibly overwhelming and destabilizing. And that implicit memory still lives in our bodies, right? It it still is there. So by doing that intentional engagement with the hard stuff and the painful stuff and doing it slowly with that pendulating and resourcing, we start to build a different um, experience with that and eventually more self-trust, more resilience, more capacity, more power, right? More agency, because then we're no longer just skirting away and running away from the hard things. We're actually choosing to be with it in a different way. Yeah. And I think one more thing I would add is that more soulful lens, life is cyclic, humans are cyclic. So there is going to be a birth and death cycle for most things that are psychological. And sometimes stuckness is a death. It Something is dying, some part of us, some behavior, some old coping strategy, some mechanism, some relationship, some job, something is in the death process. And it's like um, gestation, right? Or, or like the cocoon stage. It's like there's something germinating and moving and shifting and changing that will be emergent, that will be alive, that will be born. Um, But it's about building the capacity to be with the hard stuff as that thing is dying and ending and that cycle is completing. Oh, I I love thinking about it like that. It's just such a beautiful reframe. Let me ask you this. This is my last question. I think sometimes in our healing journeys, we can feel stuck within ourselves. Like we can't seem to move forward from our own fear, our own compulsive behavior, whatever it is. When we feel stuck inside ourselves, what are some healing steps we can take? I think framing that like compulsion, like you mentioned, compulsive behaviors as survival responses can be really helpful. It's like when I'm stuck, what's my knee-jerk reaction? Is it to scroll on my phone? Is it to um, eat? Is it to 
use sex? Is it to uh, like isolate and avoid? What is, is like the patterning around the uncomfortable feeling? And, and how do I begin to bring consciousness and awareness to that way of being in that pattern? In some Buddhist teachings, there's this beautiful practice. It's called Shenpa. And it's, it's like, what do we do? What is the urge that we cling to when we're triggered? Like, what is the automatic thing? And if we bring consciousness to that, then we can start to unravel it and, and rewind, like unwind it. And, and with Shenpa, there's, there's like four steps. And the first one is recognizing. The second one is uh, refraining from participating in the con- compulsory behavior. And the third one is relaxing into the discomfort of not engaging in that thing. And then the fourth one is the resolve to always be practicing unhooking from our compulsive patterns and behaviors. And so when we feel stuck in ourselves, it's like a number one, inviting in that compassion that this is probably survival based. This is probably old. This is probably because we had to, can I bring consciousness and awareness around it? Can I move towards the discomfort? Can I recognize that maybe my soul is calling me into a deeper relationship with myself? with the parts of me that have been abandoned. And what's coming to mind is you like in the car being like, God has disowned me. Like I am not the chosen one. And in those moments of like complete and utter despair and disconnection from the universe, it's like, how have I abandoned myself? How have I left a part of myself? And can I go find them? Can I be in a deep, deeper relationship with that thing that's been left? Um, It's so hard because I just wanted to highlight that too. Like stuckness is such a challenging and universal experience. But when we look at it, like, wow, there's something here for me that is asking to be healed. It brings the agency back. It brings the power back. It brings the choice back. And we have the capacity to engage in it or not, right? That's the other beautiful thing. It's like, we can choose to do this work or not. And and through that, we are giving our like child, child selves the choices that they maybe didn't have when we were growing up and we're developing a different relationship with who we are in the moment and who we want to be in the future. Oh, Zara, this is such, Oh my God. Thank you so much. I'm just, yeah, I have truly learned so much just in the last 45 minutes chatting with you. And I can't thank you enough for coming on. I can't, and I can't wait to share this episode with, with folks. I just think it's like such a beautiful episode if people want to get a hold of you or contact you, is there a way for them to do that? Yeah. Um, so my website is probably the best way to get in touch with me. It's um, zaranukum.com. And by email, like I find if there's some something that someone wants to share with me, if they want to get in touch with me personally, they can absolutely send me an email. So my email is therapy at zaranukum.com. And um, this has been such an honor and such a gift to be with you. I feel like so lit up and like in my own body, like really inspired and feeling that like felt sense of, of safety and connection in place. So thank you for creating that. Yay. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll also put a link to your um, website in the show notes. So if people want to link out that way, they can find you there. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at the Patrama Party or on my personal Insta at Remy's, R-E-M-E-E-Z. You can also email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like to hear covered, hit me up. 
Also, if you want to join the Patrama Party community, find us on Facebook. It's such a cool group of listeners. We check in with each other about the stuff we're going through and offer support and resources. So if you're into that, just search the Patrama Party and I'll add you. Speaking of support, if this pod has helped you and you have a minute, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. I read all of the reviews. And if you'd like to support the pod, you can now. You can give a dollar a month, $5, whatever works. I pour myself into this podcast. I put so much time and energy into it. So if you're able and moved to, just go to podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash the Patrama party and scroll down to the support button. You can also find the support option on Spotify. And until next time, baby, enjoy the party. Bye. The information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only. None of the material presented is intended to be a substitute for psychotherapy, counseling, professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you need to speak with a professional, find one local to you and reach out directly.